Welcome to Headliners, the podcast. This is the paper review that won't put you to sleep. You can catch us live every night from 11 on GB News with a panel of top-notch comedians going through the biggest stories hitting the next day's papers. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Headliners. Hello and welcome to Headliners. I'm Dominic Frisbee and joining me tonight to cast their cynical eyes across the manipulated mainstream media, we have alienated white man, Nick Dixon. <laughs> and we have deluded centrist, Steve N. Allen. The question is, which of you two is more irritated by your introduction? <laughs> That's true. But I suppose me, because uh, surely deluded centrist feels oxymoronic. If you want to be deluded, head off to the extremes in either direction. Um, Good retort. I actually, alienated white man is perfect. I actually requested it because it's so on brand. I'm very <laughs> so happy. Business card. <laughs> <laughs> so, gentlemen, our first headline from Tuesday's Independent: the trial of the man who murdered an MP in church. Nick. Yeah, horrific story. Of course, we all remember uh, Ali Harvey Ali found guilty of murdering Sir David Amos, and the jury returned the verdict after only 18 minutes of deliberations. That's because he admitted to it killing him but he denied murder, claiming he was defending Muslims in Syria because uh, Amos voted in favour of bombing ISIS in Syria in 2015. So that was an absurd reason he used. So, yeah, a horrible story. He, he's going to be sentenced on Wednesday. One thing that bothered me was someone from the Met Police said, hopefully he'll spend a considerable amount of time in jail. You sort of feel that's not really enough. I, I don't know what sentence would be enough, but hopefully it's uh, more than a considerable life. amount of time. Yeah, exactly. And when life actually means life. Well, exactly, exactly. And, um, and there's a lot of detail on how it happened. He was, he was part of that prevent scheme, that, but then he left it, and there's a lot of criticism that prevent obviously doesn't work as well as it should. And, it, yeah, just a horrible story. Uh, Joe Cox's husband's made a really good statement about it. And it was also shocking that he sort of surveilled Michael Gove's house quite extensively, thinking he was going to go for him. But, he only, but then when Gove moved out, he changed his mind on that. So, yeah, horrible. Yeah, I mean, you wonder what's being done to tackle this, Steve. You, mm. you sort of think they're going to do what they do, always do in this case, is sort of brush it under the carpet, let the story die down and hope it goes away. But it's, it won't. I mean, there are different parts of it, aren't they? Radicalised online, so what can you do to try and stop that? There's the debate to be had about how much access without security we get to our MPs, which would be such a crying shame, because one of the nice things of our system is that you can see the person who represents you locally and go and have a chat about the issue that affects you. And we only get that privilege while ever people aren't so righteous in their opinions that they think that a, a murder is in some way the way that they deal with the situation. It's, it's ridiculous. I and mean, when you hear the details of not liking the way that he voted is the reason for this. No, the principle of democracy is if someone in Parliament doesn't vote the way you want, you don't vote for them. We have a system and the system only works whenever we maintain the system. How aware do you think uh, Ali, Harbi Ali, was of the uh, principles of British democracy? Yes, I mean, very good point. But then what do we do? I mean, how do you make people who are radicalised online value democracy? It feels like a stupid question because that's not going to be a thought process going off in their heads. No. Any more thoughts? 
No, just the, the, I've watched videos from it. It's, it's absolutely horrific, but the police were incredibly brave. They went in with basically batons and spray and managed to get this guy on the ground and, and, and you know, apprehend him. So that's, that was really brave from the police. But, yeah, like you say, this, pre this prevent thing isn't, isn't working. And do you remember when, it, when the murder first happened, talking about brushing things under the carpet, all the MPs started talking about the online safety bill and this bizarre bit of deflection. And yeah, well, then it, it was quickly turned to be a radicalisation of the, of the far right and all right, right. and all this. What... I guess, annoys me about this entire story is that had this court case not made the news today or tomorrow, this week, I think this story would already be half forgotten. Hmm. I don't know, though, because in the I same mean, way... That... You need the immediacy of a story to drive people to do something about it. If you have a... If you, have a you know, politicians tend to do bold things in a time of crisis. Hmm. Um, so... But crises are ongoing, because this was a one-off event. It's, it's, it's a one-off event, but one of many. So it, 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 it sort of has a little burst and then it goes away. It's not a sort of ongoing yeah. crisis or it's not treated as such. But Joe Cox is certainly a reference that is brought up on the day when this story happened. And David Amos will be a reference that's brought up which hopefully will start to sharpen our minds to actually take action. But you're right, I don't think it will therefore happen suddenly all at once, but maybe this is building some yeah. momentum. I think there are two issues. There's one, the safety of MPs. And but then the other issue is this ongoing loathing of everything British by certain Muslim British citizens. And that is something that's got to be dealt with. Otherwise, we're just going to have more and more terror attacks. Anyway, another pretty nasty story next. This, uh, this one's from the Indy. And the gay Muslim MP Imran Khan is found guilty of sexually assaulting a... 15-year-old Catholic boy. I think this is yours, Steve. Yeah, I mean, it says the first line is Tory MP, former Tory MP now. That's yeah. safe to say. Um, Imran Khan found guilty of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy in 2008. Uh, so the victim claims he was forced to drink gin, touched inappropriately, shown uh, pornography. He denied it, but we've got the jury of the verdict, uh, the verdict of the jury. And I was thinking about this, that thankfully most of us don't even have the brain capacity to understand why you would ever want to sexually abuse someone, certainly never someone who's a child. There's another question that crops to mind. If you do that, why would you try and win a seat in Parliament? Why would you not keep your head low? I mean, th so this all happened when, when he was uh, sitting for the seat. There was a complaint made originally, but it's the extra complaint that happened when the victim came forward. He said he was also not taken seriously when he first made allegations. I think the incident happened in 2008, but the allegations only emerged when he when... saw him standing yeah. in the last election. That's what I mean. Oh, yeah. OK. Like, so the original... Uh, no complaint was made originally. Separate conversation to be had about why that might have so happened. So I guess he thought he'd got away with it, which is why he went and stood. If he knew it was going to come back and haunt him, he probably wouldn't have... Yeah, I don't know. That, that just sits weirdly in my head. But then, as I say, most of us can't understand this guy's thinking anyway. So. I guess the, the further and further it gets from the time of the incident, it hard, the harder it gets to, to prosecute Nick. Would you agree with that? But yeah, yeah, but, but it, it seems to have worked in this case. I mean, it does. the most absurd part was there was that he started talking about pornography with the boy and he's claimed that it was a, a merely a philosophical discussion about sexuality. That's the most ridiculous claim yeah. in it. Yeah, it's just, I don't have much to add. It's just more degeneracy and evil in our fallen culture, really. <laughs> it's the getting him drunk as well. Yeah, yeah it's gross. So to the Times and Rishi Sunak's finances, Boris has improved, approved uh, an investigation, Nick.
Yeah, Boris Johnson approves investigation into Rishi Sunak's family finances. Maybe it's revenge for that photo from the window we all saw in the party gate, <laughs> you know, from Rishi's office, who took the photo. But, um, yes, that's um, just a bit of frivolity. It is serious. Uh, when Sunak's referred himself to uh, the government's ethics chief, so Lord Geit, the independent adviser, is going to investigate this and see if there's anything, you know, anything amiss. And so, you know, it's, it's Rishi having a bit of integrity, saying, yeah, you should check it out. He's done it a bit late. I mean, he, he's obviously failed to get across this issue. And then he made a sort of dubious claim of racism. He said, um, you know, fair-minded people surely wouldn't mind an Indian woman living in Downing Street. So he did this. He, there was a little bit of a race card played there, which people like Matthew Syed have said is pretty appalling and, and, and very uh, tenuous. So, yeah, and, and, and there's been a, perhaps an unfair attempt, even by Syed, actually, to link this with the sort of Bullingdon club types and say, oh, Rishi's an example of that. Really, Rishi seems to have come from a, a, a sort of lower class background than, than that, and he's just married someone very rich. So, you know... It, he's a lizard. Well, there is that. I mean, it's a secret lizard, yeah. It's not great. It's been a tough time for Rishi. Most people think now he can't be prime minister. There's rumours that he thought about just quitting. I don't know if that's true. But, yeah, it's not great times for Rishi, but he, could have, he should have started with this and said and just been completely transparent. I think his, his copybook's stained and he's not handled this very well. Yeah, indeed. But I do think that was a good letter. And also, calling for the inquiry is just... It's that classic line. So now, when anyone mentions anything, the answer is, well, I can't possibly comment. The inquiry is ongoing. But Work for uh, Boris. And I, I was thinking the last time we, we were talking about some subject about tax, and even we got to the same point as all of these conversations do, where someone says, well, don't blame the person who exploits the loopholes, blame the loopholes. If you want it sourcing, close the loopholes. If the person in charge of the loopholes is doing a pretty tidy business out of some loopholes and his missus is loving it too, then that's a... A, a rum situation. Yes, but the Chancellor is not actually responsible for the tax code. There is no um, minister for HMRC. There should be. It's one of these weird anach British anachronisms. In practice, the Chancellor sort of is responsible, or the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, but it's one of these weird anachronisms. Her Majesty's revenue and customs, it's actually... HMRC is accountable to the Queen. Let's look into the Queen's tax affairs. <laughs> well, uh, let's replace income tax with land value tax and we'll get the Queen that way. Right, many people of all ethnicities feel they are treated differently because of their ethnicity. And the murdered teenager Sabina Ness's sister is no different. This is from The Times, Steve. Yes, um, this is uh, Jabina Yasmin Islam who was saying that there was no support from the government, described people in senior positions as useless. Uh, and then also raised an issue with uh, Priti Patel using her sister's name for publicity reasons. And, again, it's one of these stories with two parts. There's the emotional impact we will have by reading the details of the crime and how horrible and evil that is. And then there's this accusation of what is basically racism. I mean, it's hard to prove, but it's also hard to disprove because some of these questions resonate somewhat. I mean, she raises issues to do with uh, the murder of Sarah Everard, how that was covered, as that was dealt with and reported. And so the questions are, why, why is there a difference in the way that this was dealt with? Um, but it must be a horrible, a horrible situation to be in. Yeah, I, I've heard the Everard question raised a lot, and there are loads of white women who've been raped and murdered who have not had the coverage that Everard did. For whatever reason, Everard hit a public nerve and the ensuing media followed that. Yeah, I was going to argue exactly the same, Dom. I mean, it, it is horrible, obviously, this case, but I do question the statement because, as we know, there was a horrific abuse of working-class white girls in Rotherham and other places for years and years, so that does tend to undermine it. Yeah, Everard, there was many aspects to that. It was a policeman that did it. He was abusing lockdown rules. 
maybe it was some, a class issue as well. Who knows? But that one captured the public imagination. Obviously, they're both horrific. But yeah, I think, I think it's questionable, given that white people have also been treated terribly. That doesn't disprove the accusation, though, just to get it, all logic on it, just because you can find an example mm -hmm. of something that didn't receive the same um, coverage. That's no, it doesn't not... disprove it. It just, it just, it just, you just, it just, you, you question it. But yeah, it could still also be the case. Yeah, I don't doubt though that her complaint, her fundamental complaint, that she didn't get enough support from the authorities. I don't doubt for a second it's true. Mm. Right. Um, anyway, we move on to the Guardian and the CEO of the government-funded NHS Confederation calls on the government for more funding for his federation. Is this, uh, is this the NHS one, or are we talking about a different one? Yes, we are. There was such a... It's weirdly framed. Yeah, it was... Yeah, I framed it. It was such an ideological... Oh, no, sorry. No, we, this, is a, this is not the, not the COVID being ignored story. I beg your pardon, I've done the wrong... I've given the wrong introduction ah. to the story, and I shall now do the right introduction to the story, <laughs> which is from The Guardian, that COVID is apparently being ignored, says the NHS leaders for ideological reasons. Exactly. So, yes, it's, it's, it's quite interesting that um, the NHS is claiming the government's ignoring COVID for ideological reasons because, of course, the NHS are incredibly ideological. And they've, uh, they, they want to plunge us back into the horror of restrictions. And they're annoyed that the government has essentially dropped COVID and, and moved on, which sort of does... It does feel like that's the case. It almost proves that COVID was, was a, partly a political phenomenon anyway, the fact that you can just drop it. My conclusion would be, therefore, we, we should never even have the restri uh, restrictions. But the NHS's conclusion is we shouldn't be coming out of restrictions. And, uh, they're, yeah, they're saying we're still struggling, we're under pressure kind of revealing the fact that the NHS doesn't really work there inadvertently. And they just, they're saying things like bring back mask wearing, bring back vaccine propaganda, my word. And um, yeah, and, that, and that's basically the story. And yeah. I've noticed when I got COVID in December, um, you, I did my PCR test. I reported the PCR test to the uh, NHS and I got my six month, you know, COVID exemption for ha having had COVID. It's really hard to do that now because you have, don't have, you don't have the PCR tests anymore. Yeah, yeah I mean... Why, you, why do you think COVID's... It's sort of... Is it because Ukraine's more important and we've got COVID fatigue or what's going on? in part, if you stop testing, then you'll stop having results to be able to talk about. There's definitely a whiff of that. But also, I think the point that it never should have been an issue in the first place somehow presumes that the ratio of cases to death rates would have been the same all the way from the start, and that's not true. It's very much lower now, and that's why it's less of an issue. But... I mean, there's so many people I know have had it in the last three weeks. And, and as bad very as few of them have died. Yeah, oh, that ratio. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, I guess it's good for long-term immunity, the more people that have the mild version. Yeah, I think lo the longer it goes on, we'll reach this kind of asymptote of it will just then be in the, in the mix. But we're not quite there yet, so it's this really weird... We do seem to have reached this point where COVID is not a thing anymore, not so much of a thing, and it's just sort of been... I don't know whether it's deliberate or accidental, but it's just become... We're just sort of brushing it away and pretending it never happened. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the war just trumped it, didn't it? Yes. it, it it's, just, it's gone. I support the current thing. <laughs> That's the meme, isn't it? Guardian <laughs> and fracking <laughs> is next, Steve. I'm quite interested to see what your take is on fracking. Well, I mean, it's a as chemical a, as the company. the voice of reason. The voice of reason, yeah. I, actually, I am going to annoy you with my level of reason on this one, definitely. So it's a chemical company, an energy company, Enios. But chemistry, so I'm going to love it. Um, but they've offered to drill shale gas test sites in the UK to demonstrate that fracking can be done safely. My point would be what they're offering is research. 
So why would we be deaf to research? As long as we don't come into it presuming we know the answer and only wanting our side to win, a test is useful information. Now, so I would prefer it to be step one of a multifaceted approach that includes getting these nuclear things up and running and definitely focusing on endgame um, renewables. So if this is a stopgap, absolutely beautiful, as long as the research tells us it's safe. But if there's some people, they tend to make like a false dichotomy of, oh, you've got to have this, which means then you can't have the green, which seems ridiculous in a long-term situation. Um, well, Too reasonable? No, uh, utterly sensible. I mean, I will say about the nature of... I mean, it, it is research and it's valuable information, so how can you oppose it? They're obviously so convinced they can do it, which is why they're proposing to do it in the first place. They're convinced that it works. I think of the three fossil fuels, gas is the most preferable to, mm. to, to oil and coal. It's the cleanest. And there are... I know this because I invested in a company that went tits up that did it, where they found a way <laughs> of... of uh, using diesel engine, burning natural gas in diesel engines to, to fuel cars. And they found it was very effective and very clean, but for one reason or another, it went tits up. But so, you know, I, I agree. I will say, though, when you're researching something, often, you know, it's a bit like being a comedian. You find out on the job. So you could say a new material night is research into your thing, but you... So it's part research, but you do discover as you do the job as well. Yeah. There is a bit of that. At least in the article, they say they would they would respond if it were found to not be true. So at least it doesn't sound like this company has a bias going in. I know we all yeah. have bias. And, and Jim Ratcliffe's not going to... You know, he's got too much to lose yeah. if it goes... And this company would have too much to lose, so you can assume they're going to act like proper scientists, which yeah. is what a scientific but, company would but do. But then regardless of the results, everyone who's already got their own bias would go off, say that this result um, reaffirms what they already what thought. What I've been saying for <laughs> <Yeah>. years. <laughs> do you have any thoughts on fracking or should we move straight on? No, I just, I just thought it was funny that you used a phrase we probably can't use and double down and said it again, but no, I, I don't have anything massive. I just, I'm just, nothing massive, just it's all a bit late, isn't it? And we're doing it now because of the geopolitical situation and energy cost and fracking is not ideal, but we, we have to try stuff. That's my only take we, on it. We need to take back control. Take back control. energy. <laughs> Uh, the Telegraph is next, and the world's biggest ego could become the world's biggest <laughs> activist shareholder, Nick. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk reserves the right to buy up more of Twitter. So, Musk was going to take a board seat, now he isn't, which meant the stock price of Twitter fell by 8%, I believe, but then it rec recovered. But it actually could be a good thing for, the, for Musk fans, Muscovites, they could be called, but, it, because it means that he can take uh, more stock, and uh, whereas he would have been capped at a 14.9% cap and he would have had fiduciary responsibilities if he was on the board yeah. if he was on the board but now that he's not he could do a hostile takeover and it's going to be absolute bants because he's been putting up all these polls on twitter like no one goes to the hq in san francisco should we turn it into a homeless shelter 91 percent are like yes and so it's just going to be absolute banter if must take so nobody, go, nobody goes to the hq because they all work from home they all work from home and the other ceo has been very like liberal on that and musk is sort of saying hey no one's here so yeah it's brilliant if so the ceo is called parag agrawal and yes seems that he and Musk don't see eye to eye. No, well, he's notoriously woke. He's notoriously more anti-freach than Jack Dorsey was. You, you felt with Jack Dorsey... I like the he... fact that free speech has become freech. Yes. Did you, just, did you hear yourself say that? No. Is that, is that my... Did I say that? Yeah. Oh, I've invented free something. Yeah. Um, it's but, a good word. Um, <laughs> it's succinct. <laughs> it's, um, I'm always concise. But, yeah, it, because Jack Dorsey, one felt, was secretly pro-free speech. He went and talk, spoke to Joe Rogan, but he felt he couldn't do that much. He only owned something like 2.25%, or he didn't feel he could do anything. And then the new CEO is more woke, more anti 
for each. And, uh, but Musk, you feel, is going to come in and just, just blow the whole thing wide open. Not yeah, literally. there's a great stat at the end. Twitter's market value is $37 billion. Musk's net worth is $260 billion, So he <laughs> could buy it yep. 15 times over. Even I can do the math. Well, do you have any thoughts on Mr Musk's takeover of Twitter? Yeah. Um, I don't know why I don't care. It's like, it's like watching Succession, but it's less entertaining. Someone who's rich buys something that we shouldn't care about so much. That would be the great step forward. If we could all maybe not care as much about social media, you'd find yourself cheering up. Well, that's certainly well, true, and get some more sunshine and fresh air. We're going to come to this in a moment. Can I just literally answer Steve's rhetorical point? I, I know why he doesn't care. It's because people on the, more on the left are not censored by Twitter, and the people who've been kicked off repeatedly have all been conservatives, and that's why you don't care. Uh, have more fun later on tonight. There, so. is, <laughs> there is some truth to that. I, I personally think Twitter is really important because it is, it is the number one site where the arguments are had between authoritarian and libertarian, between left and right. You know, it's the site where you go, where all the big arguments are held, where the idea setters are, the, what they call the thought leaders. And, you know, you have people like Ted Cruz and he does a speech and immediately he's been video going straight on Twitter wanting to see what the reactions are. You know, it is where ideas are set, where they're developed. And I think it's really important in the sort of ecostructure of as we develop ideas. And therefore, it is doubly important that we have free speech and very little censorship, at which point you go, good on you, Elon, because Twitter was once, was once like that and it isn't anymore. But also, Twitter is a place where people who used to just rant into emptiness in the local pub that you wouldn't sit near now have followings. So, you know, it gives with one hand, takes that, away with another. That is... You, uh, the world is being designed by semi-autistic people in uh, Silicon Valley, Steve. That's the nature of the internet. <laughs> The, those who in real life would not have any control whatsoever <laughs> are designing the world in which we live. The Mirror is next and the plight of teaching. Almost half of teachers plan to quit their job. Not, not just their job, their profession in the next five years, Steve. Yes. So according to a piece of research, it's 44% uh, wish to play, leave by 2027, 22% leaving in the next two years. I think we should view this uh, against the backdrop of everyone wants to leave their job. Have you ever met anyone who doesn't complain about their job? That Because if, if there's a survey, do you like your job, you've got to have a moan. It's, it's the same reason there's a hashtag Monday thing that happens. But it's just under 2,000 people were surveyed by the National Education Union. Um, it's not and a great deal, is it? It's not... No, it's, it's roughly the number you get in a survey. Oh, it aimed okay. for about 2,000. And it's, I suppose we do have to at least listen to these results because you can't wait to see if actions follow. I think everyone threatens to quit. But if they actually did, then we'd be scuppered because who would teach the next generation of, uh, of teachers? I can't give you this statistic, but I think the dropout rate in teaching is very high. And it, it makes sense, actually, because the, the more I was reading this, it would be a job that I would hate. When I was growing up, the idea of being a teacher was a respected profession. You were the person people go to to sign their passport forms, whereas now everyone seems to be against you, the kids, the parents, the government, anyone, the media. I mean, but by the time politicians and journalists have a, a dimmer view of your profession, that's pretty low, isn't it? Yeah, you are burdened with unreasonable expectation. Yeah. And if you look at... I made a documentary about Adam Smith, um, the great philosopher, and he actually was hired by the Duke of Buccleuch, who was, like, the second richest person in the country back in whenever it was, 1770-something. And the salary he was given was extraordinarily large, and there's no way a tutor... You know, Socrates, the great tutor, these are all great teachers through Aristotle. These guys... Teachers today don't carry the same status. Mm. Yeah, I'm not surprised by this at all. I mean, it's stressful. You have to deal with teenagers. 
There's no freedom to teach what you want, especially at state schools. There's woke stuff going on. And school, I mean, look, I was never a fan of school anyway. I was highly against it. And now they're basically woke indoctrination centers. I say scrap them, just scrap the whole thing. Homeschool, done. Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> scrap uh, schools, that's my position. Well, mine is get the state out of education. That too. No, state education to brainwash our nation. It's how All know, Christian the schools. Goes. Um, hmm. The Times now and uh, trans students in schools. Nick's your expert on trans students. Yeah, eight in ten teachers say their secondary school has trans pupils. This is a YouGov poll commissioned by uh, Sex Matters, which is a human rights organisation, apparently. And they found that 79% of teachers had pupils at their school who were trans or non-binary, and 85% reported having more students in that category than three years ago. So it's not that surprising because of the way the media's going. I mean, look, there are always trans people, obviously, we should all be compassionate to them and treat people equally. But this is a trend, in my opinion. I mean, why do we suddenly have this massive rise in trans and non-binary students? The most teachers in the article concluded that it was actually about the media and celebrities and, and people getting this idea. And we did another story the other day that 5,500 children were awaiting NHS gender reassignment surgery and that it had gone up massively in lockdown. And again, the media was cited. So we have this kind of... I'm gonna, maybe I'll get in trouble. I think it's a phase. I saw a, a, a meme the other day that was comparing 2007, an emo kid with a My Chemical Romance hoodie, and then 2022, it was a, a non-binary type person. It's, I think it's, 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 it's permeated schools and the culture, and it is dangerous because kids are not old enough to make these decisions, and we have this permanent surgery that comes in, as in the famous case of Kira Bell. So I'm quite disturbed by this, because, oh, particularly this stat, I should point out. So. 20% said their school would not inform parents if a student changed their gender identity at school and had not told their parents. Only 5% said their school would inform parents without the student's consent. So what we have here is, it's like you say about the state, we have the state mixing with the current sort of liberal orthodoxy, and we have a situation where kids are thinking they're a different gender, and the school is, in a sense, conspiring to not tell the parents. And that's what is really troubling to me as well. What does the voice of reason have to say about this? For the uh, two main stats about eight in ten teachers, so they have someone who belongs to a category within their um, class and it's increased over X number of years, the same story would have been printable a while ago about the number of uh, gay kids in school, which shows development through a society. This is in no way me saying, like, yeah, we've absolutely got this. No, we totally understand this situation. It is not surprising to see an increase in people um, because we would have seen this in other groups. As, as society becomes more accepting of that group, you would detect more of them in classes, in any sample size. I just... Mm. Is that reasonable? I, I just, you really think... We, we have to move mm. on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a reasonable observation, but... You yes, don't like but it. No, but yes, yeah. but no, but... The Guardian, um, Steve, this is yours, actress and comedian Liz Carr has been speaking out on masks in theatres. Yeah. Diff difficult moral quandary, this one. Asking for mask-only theatre performances. Um, but again, the story originally, you look at it and you think, oh, this is going to be forcing people to have to all wear masks. She's actually asking for some performances to be mask-only. And this is because you would have someone who... It would be their decision and their choice to think, I only want to be in places where people are masked. And at the moment, they can't go to the theatre. But if you put on special performances for where everyone will be socially distanced and masked, these people could go to the theatre again. So I think it, when you read into it, it seems less of that headline of someone suggesting we should all be forced to wear masks all the time. Yeah. Li have you worked with Liz? Yeah. She does the King's Head downstairs at the King's Head yeah. quite often. I've, I've worked with her down there many times. And um, 
it does strike me that she'd be the sort of person who, if she did get COVID, would be hit quite hard by it. I don't know what her condition is. And so it's fair enough that she wants to go to the theatre. <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it seems a reasonable compromise. But again, I don't think it's something necessarily that the state should be mandating. It should be the individual choice the of theater. the theatre to go, you know, Wednesday matinees or whatever it is and mask only nights. Yeah. A bit like smoking bans in nightclubs, Nick. Well, yeah, I mean, one thing, though, uh, it would be, be very different if masks definitely worked. I mean, they don't work, so there's that. But I do understand if people feel uncomfortable, if they're immunocompromised or whatever, or they just feel uncomfortable, yeah, I'm not a monster. You can have one night or however many nights the theatre decides. We have different nights for different things, don't we? Some people who can't, uh, who can't not uh, make noise during a performance. We have nights for... We have baby screening. So, yeah, I, that seems reasonable to me. The problem becomes when... There's a non-alcoholic night now at the backyard. Oh, really? I mean, no drinks. Oh, good. See, that's more my kind of night. That's the thing. I mean, I, I would... The, the problem becomes when you say people shouldn't wear... People all should be wearing masks in general just because of a few people, because, unfortunately, society can't really work like that because we can't just change everything for a minority opinion. You know, I would have a Christian patriarchy, no drinking, no smoking, no drugs. But, you know, it's not going to be implemented yet. So it's... Uh, <laughs> it's uh, so... But, but if they're just saying, let's have a... You know, because there are people who are not comfortable. So at the occasional... However many nights they want to put on like that, you know, fine. Start with magic mushrooms. Yep. This is from The Independent. Magic mushroom compound rewires the brain for people with depression. I mean, Timothy Leary knew this in the 60s, but this is psilocybin, the psychedelic compound found in magic mushrooms, could be used to help treat depression. I mean, some would argue the other thing is just fix your life, but this is the big debate with depression, of course. How, is it a real thing? Is it... Well, most people admit it is now, but I think we've always had depression. But anyway, that's a, that's they a whole... They call it melancholy. Yeah, they used to call it melancholy. And, and of course, Melville and Moby Dick called it the hypos. I tend to see it as a more existential problem rather than a just strictly medical condition. But who cares what I think? This is about, um, yeah, psilocybin. But the, the theory is that it opens up the mind... Uh, where's the thing? It opens up communication between different parts of the brain and works therapeutically to alleviate depression. So... And conditions that are marked by fixed patterns of thinking. Of, uh, thinking. So, yeah, it's a kind of open-up man, like, like they were saying in the 60s. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would treat it more of as a, as a last resort, and I would say get some sun on you, 20 minutes of sun, and do some exercise and see if that works. But even that's chemical. I think, yes, yeah, well, absolutely, yeah. 100% it's chemical, yeah. yeah. So, but why, why have some sort of pharmaceutical intervention when you could create your own chemicals inside you? I, on that, we totally agree. You must be getting more reasonable. <laughs> oh, the uh, libertarian stance is a very reasonable <laughs> stance, Stephen. <laughs> um, any more thoughts on that? I mean, it, it, somebody can make a lot of money selling pharmaceutical drugs to cure depression when a much cheaper alternative where nobody makes any money except maybe the park keeper yeah. or something. I will, I will say one more thing. This came out in a trial where the, there was psilocybin on one side and a standard antidepressant on the other side, and it found that the psilocybin was better. If it helps get rid of these dodgy antidepressants that are messing up people's lives, then maybe it's a good thing, I don't know. Yes, but um, psychedelics have side effects. Yeah, well, I, you know me, I'm anti-all drugs. I was just trying to be reasonable. Going for a run has side effects as well. State of my knees. <laughs> well, that's true, but what is it? There was an old... The old cure, I was reading, I forget where it was from, some 18th-century pamphlet, but the, the cure for melancholy was to go out and dig a hole. In the ground with a spade. In other words, you up, it? Yeah, Melvis thing. Well, not that kind of old. Yeah. <laughs> Melvis thing was go out to sea. What yeah. about that? Because it's partly a lifestyle thing, isn't it? It's not purely in, in your, just a, a chemical thing. Fresh air, exercise, and sunshine. Right, more drugs in the mail. 
Um, these ones can keep you up for 40 hours and keep you focused. Yes. So this is the Ministry of Defence has been buying thousands of these smart drugs uh, which keep you awake, uh, hope to be used for soldiers in combat. It's apparently like drinking 20 cups of coffee but without the side effects of the jitters and all this. As someone who has a four-week-old baby at home, where do I buy some of this? <laughs> it would make... Uh, yeah, some of the downsides, the side effects, are arrhythmia, high blood pressure and a weakening of the immune system. Also, the side effects of having a four-week-old at home. So I would love a slice of this. The trouble is, though, should we be drugging our soldiers to get more out of them? It's a difficult debate. I yes, suppose you sign I, up it's for it's a it. form of arming them, I suppose. Yeah, but then... I mean, look, it's not as if there aren't side effects to being a soldier. Definitely there are. But it seems... Is that the right way to go about it? To... Modafinil, yeah. it's called. But it's the... I mean, if the soldiers start taking it, then I guess people will start taking it at work to improve their performance. Comedians will start taking it during Edinburgh. Yeah, you know. well, being famously anti-drug, as we've established, I was totally against it until it said it's rumoured to have been the inspiration for the uh, drug taken in the film Limitless. And then I was like, OK, that's really cool because I want to be like that film. Have you seen Limitless? No, I haven't. It's very cool. He can suddenly use his whole brain and he, and he goes from being a kind of procrastinating loser writer to just being a total legend. I don't I want to spoil it for you because you, you should watch no, no, it should, tonight. Like, yeah. But, yeah. I'm, I'm, I am very interested by this general concept of... I, I think it's one area where medicine... It's, you know, we've got very good at fixing bones and this kind of medicine, but anything neuro we're not so good at. But this idea that we only use 10% of the brain... That's not true. Oh, isn't it? No. It, it, no that's it's a myth. But... Yeah, because our brains are sliced up in different areas. You know, your visual cortex and your hypothalamus. If you only took 10% of that, that'd only be like one bit around the back that deals with well, language. Well, presumably it's 10% of each section. Or... Oh, I see. No. I it, don't know. We, <laughs> we use, like, all... If you measure where the electricity is being measured, if you slap someone in either an ECG or an MRI, um, it's, it's all of the brain that can be lit up. Oh, OK. So I thought... Maybe I am thick. I thought I was just using 10%. <laughs> well, I think maybe you're using 10%. <laughs> that probably. might be a myth, but the wider idea that there's more potential we could untap still yeah, seems possible. That's, that, that's this... certainly true, because I, I dream stuff that I couldn't write. And so there's, a, there's something going on when I'm dreaming that... Do you know what I mean? Do you, you try and wake up and write it down and it's just nonsense? No, I'm always too tired. <laughs> I definitely have dreams. And I was like, you know, it's, it's a really visual plot of a f film or something. And I was like, there's no way I could have written that. I didn't have that knowledge. And yet I was able to... Dream it and visualise it. So, I mean, this drug does apparently one of the things it helps with is creativity. Do you want soldiers being more creative, doing yeah. a bit of paintwork? Well, you want art. You know, as an artist, if 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 I was a musician, say, and this was the difference between being Johnny Johnny Generic and being Bob Marley or the Beatles or something, then I take the drug. That's a fast Johnny impact. Generic. Johnny you don't generic. need that drug. <laughs> if you can come up with that, it's quite a good one. I just made it up. Right, to the sun, and it's not Karen's that complain, it's Nick, it's Sarah's. Yeah, Karen's aren't the biggest complainers on the internet. After all, study, study finds other names more likely. So David's were found to leave the most negative reviews on TripAdvisor and Trustpilot. Sarah was the worst woman's name for complaints. Though it's trying to debunk this, it actually turns out Karen is still the second worst female for online moans. So it's like, as far as cruel and unfair stereotypes go, it's remarkably accurate. I mean, she's still got... Karen still gets second, so they're not far off. But, we, yeah, we should be saying Sarah's instead of Karen's. And then it had a list of other names that, that complained, and it was John, Mark, Chris, James, Michael, Andrew, Peter. And the main thing is there were no nicks in there because, famously, I'm well-known for never complaining. And uh, there was no Doms or Steves in there either, I have to say. So you... All Anglo-Saxon names, though. No Asian names, no African names, no uh, South American names, no Latin names. 
So it's as though only the British complain, and I thought we were famous for our stoicism. Um, the Express and new plans to stop the scourge of fly-tipping. Yeah, I'm going to have to buy the Express so I can get angry and read this all over again. Fly-tipping set to become less widespread after uh, new plans were unveiled to scrap changes on households getting rid of DIY waste. Charges. Charges, that's right, yes. Um, good, because... It's so difficult to throw anything away. And then I realised not being able to throw away DIY waste is one of my excuses to not do it. So bad. But let's pretend we don't have that. Um, I remember growing up in... We had the, the Keep Ashfield Tidy assemblies that we had to turn up to. Certainly in Ashfield's where I grew up. And we were always told, you know, throw things in bins. Keep this place tidy. You try putting anything in a bin these days. They're only collected every fortnight. You've got to live in your own waste mm -hmm. for some reason. If you want to get rid of anything slightly bigger, they'll find it in the bin and they leave it out there. So it... It, then it gets to the stage where if you can't throw anything away, this the system it's like getting it's like being societally constipated. Yeah, if you can't throw it away, you're going to tip it. Yeah, Nick. No, I've got nothing really on that. It's just it's too boring to even say. I think we should move on. Okay. <laughs> I narrated a documentary once about fly tipping, and there were some pretty gruesome stories. There were this company that set set itself up to get rid of your chemical waste. It bought a plot of land on the cheap, dumped all the chemical waste on the land kept the money and, and then let itself go bankrupt and then just left this huge pile of chemical waste at the end of these people's roads. It's horrible, the stuff that goes on. Anyway, this story makes me sad. It's from the mail, so it's no doubt exaggerated, but there's also, <laughs> no doubt, plenty of truth to it as well. The slow death of children's games, Nick. It's shocking. Are traditional childhood pastimes dying out is the question. Playing tag, or as normal people call it, TIG. Building a den and flying a kite are some of the simple outdoor pleasures today's computer-loving generation have never enjoyed. And so, shockingly, Dom, 72% have never played Stuck in the Mud, which was all we had when I grew up. I mean, I, here's a funny thing. Leapfrog it even says here where you jump over others. I don't others. think I've played Stuck. How do you play Stuck in the Mud? You, you just get stuck in mud, and then someone has to uh, tag, TIG you, and then you... I've forgotten. Is that, is that it, Steve? <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember you were, played it. Oh, no, he definitely played it. You're, you, you're stuck until someone tags you or they tag you to unstuck it. I can't remember the exact details. I didn't know you were going to grill me on that. Just imagine how different your life would have been if you didn't have that experience. Yeah. It clearly has stayed with you to today. Well, look... Grandma's footsteps, lib... Hang on. Frog, British Bulldogs. I've the played British it Bulldogs is the key one. Only 79% have never played it. We're raising a soft generation, Dom, who hasn't been maimed by their... Well, it's quite rough. <laughs> ...fellow kids Gives the trying to get across some grass. the small kids. Yeah, Which yeah. Is, um, conkers are not played by 79%. It's outrageous. It's outrageous. <laughs> and Poo Sticks has gone, which was a great game, especially in the country where I'm from. And can I just say one quick thing? A fifth of parents admit they worry their child's lack of connection to nature means they'll struggle to understand how important it is to protect the environment. That's not the conclusion. The conclusion is that they're going to be soft and weird. And, well, then they're spending too much time in front of their computers. Will you be forcing grandmother's footsteps on your newborn son? Or not at all. No, my... I mean, he's only... As I say, four weeks old, so he's, he's not responding to the training yet. But, uh, no, he's going to get a computer in his hand. He's going to learn about IP addresses. The world he's going to live in, if you are a whiz with a conquer but not that good with a device, you're unemployed, mate. So he's going to be well-trained in the way of... He can swipe better than I can. I'm sorry, I've just remembered what stuck in the mud was. You were stuck. You had your legs sort of open. You were stuck in the mud. And then you, someone had to run through your legs to free you, but someone else was blocking you, blocking them from doing that. I think that's what it was. The Guardian is next. <laughs> <laughs> and something about equality for farm animals, Steve. Yes, they've done a survey. Children say that farm animals and humans should be treated the same. This is up to the age of adolescence. I mean, 
yeah, because up to that age, most of the animals these kids have come across speak to them or sing about wheels on buses. So I'm not sure that they have the best and widest viewpoint on what animals are really like. Don't get me wrong, I love an animal, but this research seems to be missing something. It's from the Universities of Exeter and Oxford. They asked a group of British children aged 9 to 11 um, about what you know the, pro the hierarchy of animals. I do like the thing down the bottom where it said... Um, the children not only judge animals to be equal, uh, they concluded that dogs ought to be treated better than pigs, but pigs should be treated no differently to humans. So let's just complete that logical uh, yeah. diagram. They think dogs should be treated better than humans. You disagree with that? Yeah, vote for yourself, <laughs> kids. Come on. I'm, I actually agree with Steve for once. It's, uh, I don't think kids fully understand the infrastructure of our society or the macro and micro nutrients. Can you really go to kids? They probably think dragons should be treated the same. And finally, last comment, this is, this is vegan propaganda from The Guardian. That's what it is. Well, The Guardian loves a bit of inequality. Um, wherever it can highlight it, it will. The Times now, and I must say, I never had any strong views on Cyrus Cranes, but had I had any views, it turns out they would have been wrong, Nick. Yes, Saras Crane uh, parents invite third bird to share the load. So it, it, India's Saras Crane is known for being a romantic. The idea is they bond for life and they kind of pine. If the other one dies, they pine forever to the point where newlyweds will go and see these cranes for inspiration. So they're known for m monogamy. But now what they... Now, I thought this was a, an attempt by the mainstream media to claim that they're actually polyamorous because that's the kind of thing I suspect the media do. But actually... It's more of an au pair situation because they're admitting that the, the, third, the third bird doesn't take part in mating. They're just there to help raise the kids. So actually, they are still these romantic birds. They just occasionally take on a little bit of extra help. They're kind of middle class cranes. Yeah. Um, this is the story for Steve, the scientist. Time travel <laughs> is real and anti-gravity tech is possible. The sun says so. Yeah, in the sun. Um, I think the word possible and could in that sentence, those words are very busy because, yes, it could be possible. Um, time travel and the anti-gravity technology, they've looked into... This is according to some documents they've managed to get from the, the Pentagon. A lot of this is just scientific guesswork because I could tell you right now, Einstein tells us that space-time is a thing, that gravity's not a force, that um, gravity's effectively some deformation of space-time. So if you find a way to cleverly curve space-time, you can get rid of gravity. There you go. I've just invented the anti-gravity machine. Actually building it is a lot tougher. Same things for, yeah, wormholes could make you travel. Yeah, sci-fi has known about this for ages. Until someone actually makes any of these devices, then it's not really worth getting excited about. It's classic clickbait, because yeah. it goes, secret UFO files reveal. So you think they've got these files, these secret Pentagon files from UFOs, but they're actually yeah. <laughs> files about UFOs. But, but if they got all this about time travel just from a freedom of information request, why can't they ask them about the aliens? And, uh, but, but I'm very excited about the idea, idea of time travel. I would go back to just before I explained stuck in the mud and not bother tonight. Because no one cares. Okay, I think I'd go back to 1066 or 1065 and warn Harold to get south quicker. Right, meanwhile, in the mail, Nick, space travel is going green. Yeah, NASA to test spin launches bizarre whirl and hurl space launch technology to fling satellites into orbit. So it, this is a uh, US space agency has signed an agreement with California startup Spin Launch to test the latter's bizarre kinetic launch system, seen as a green alternative to fuel based launches. So Yes, it is interesting now that rockets are now considered not green enough. I'm just wondering when the Extinction Rebellion are going to strap themselves to a rocket. That would be my question. Soon will be good. Are you keen on green 
I love a bit of this. I mean, look, it's only because the Daily Mail put the word green in there that all of a sudden there's a reason <laughs> to hate it. This is a sweet, this is proper science. This is Newtonian. Getting a bit of uh, conservation of angular momentum. They, sp they spin it round in a vacuum so you don't get the air resistance, then just whoop it up into space. Yeah, I mean, it seems like an absolutely great breakthrough, if it works. Right, we've got 30 seconds on our final story, which is f the, uh, the latest controversy to dog Formula One. They want to get rid of um, fire risk underwear and jewellery. Now, jewellery, I don't care about. A lot of the arguing about being able to wear jewellery, it's, it's like when you, one of those uh, kids is getting told off before PE about what you can and can't wear. But if they invent fireproof underwear, Boris Johnson will be able to lie more. That's all I got. <laughs> but, yes, they, they, they want to uh, check on, on F1 drivers' underpants. Yeah, the only part I know was that Lewis Hamilton said his earrings are welded in and they could only be removed by cutting off his ear. I'd be fine with that because men shouldn't be wearing earrings anyway. That's my position. Thanks for listening to Headliners, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode again. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. Speak to you at the same time tomorrow for the paper review that's never boring.